Let's go to John chapter 19 today. As today we look at the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, and the burial of Christ. There's a really cool psalm, Psalm 18. It says, I will love you, O Lord, my God, my strength. And I've always loved that psalm because it's a psalmist who's being honest. He's just saying, I will love you. You know, it's almost like he's saying, my love has not yet gotten there, but Lord, I'm working on it. How many of you here know that God loves you? You guys know he loves you, right? And, and it's so cool to know that it's demonstrated on the cross. He didn't just say it. He, he died to prove that he loves us. William Barclay, he said that God didn't suddenly reveal his love at the cross. He's always loved you. And he always will. But the cross is the most vivid demonstration of that love. You know, because we are the ones who crucified him. We are the ones that, that made him suffer the way that he did. We did. And while we were killing him, while we were crucifying him, you know what he said? He said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. I mean, I mean, what kind of love is that? You know, because our love is so dependent on whether or not they're nice to me, whether or not you know they love me, whether or not you know they treat me right. And if you don't, then I'm probably not going to be real interested in being nice to you, and much less loving you. But that's what God wants to change us into. But in the meantime. He wants to reach us with that understanding. You had a good day, praise God, he loves you. You had a bad day, which a lot of you guys, a lot of us have. A bad moment, a bad thought, a bad word, a bad deed, a failure, a sin, whatever it might be. You neglect him, you ignore him, you don't pray, you don't go to church, you don't read your Bible, you fall so short, you don't love others. He still loves you. That's what the cross demonstrates. Now, I'm not saying that we should you know, go ahead and continue in that behavior, but all I'm saying is there's something about going through life every day, every moment of my life, understanding beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am loved, that I am loved by God. Maybe not by others, that's okay, because they're just human, but I am loved by God. And not only that, you know, one of the things that, uh, I don't know if you guys do this, and this is probably wrong for me, but it's just the way that I am. I'm just Manny. I'm just weird who, who I am, you know? And a lot of times when I'm at home, I'm talking to my kids, and we talk about death a lot. We talk about death a lot. You know, hey, you know, let's enjoy today, I'll tell my family, because you never know, we might not have tomorrow together. You know, I mean, I'm getting older, and, you know, I've had uncles, I tell them, who died of heart attacks in their 40s, and, you know, I, I might die, and, and, you know, you guys might die, even though I know you're young, and I'm talking to my kids, you don't have tomorrow guaranteed, no one knows the day of their death, it's not really a respecter of age, and so we'll, we'll talk about that, and even though we're aware of, of, of death so vividly in our in our family here and you know when i die you know you get books and ariel might get computers or things like that we'll see how it all works out but i mean ultimately though the, the thing that's really cool about it is we're not afraid to die we we are not afraid to die that that feeling that that thought it doesn't even come into my mind it doesn't i have a perfect peace about the day that I die. You want to know why? Because of what we're going to read today. Because of what Jesus Christ did on that cross. And so today's study is huge. I'm not going to do it justice, but as we go through our study, I pray that the Lord would encourage you and speak to you on these things regarding the love and the life that we have in Christ. And we do have an outline I want to give to you guys real quick just in case you're taking notes and you're interested. Uh, first, we have the cross of Christ, and that's going to be his crucifixion, his accusation. They had a, a card, um, but they would probably carry in front of him, and uh, then they would hang it on the cross. It was that he was the king of the Jews. And then his sole possession, which was just the clothing that is wore, and in his love 
transaction. It's interesting, when he was there on the cross, there were a few that loved him, and there he was loving on them, loving on his mom. And just, uh, again, the whole concept of the cross is him dying, suffering, you know, bearing our sins, but the whole time just thinking of others. And so after the cross of Christ, we have um, the death of Christ. And we're going to see a couple of things, his death uh, completed and his death confirmed. And that letter A is going to be a big one for us. And then after that, we have the burial of Christ. And this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, stepped up, uh, Nicodemus. And uh, then we're going to see the way that they took care of, of Jesus' body. And by the way, when you read 1 Corinthians 15, the death and burial of Christ are part of the gospel. Because when you're sharing the gospel, people have to know that he really did die. He really was buried in a body and that he rose again. And so you read that in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, so let's start here in John 19. We begin in verse 17. And it says, And he, after he had been condemned, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him one on either side, and Jesus in the center. It's hard to imagine, but you know, after the sweating drops of blood the night before, after being up and being beat up all night, after six different sessions of the mockery of a trial where he walked miles, followed by more beatings and a scourging from which many men died in those days, and then having a crown of thorns beaten into his head, they then gave him a 75-pound patabellum beam to carry from the San Antonio Fortress all the way to the place of execution. You guys know, um, you know, we go and we work out. We got these 45-pound plate, 45 plates. Imagine after going through all that, and then they say, here, boom, here's 75 pounds for you to carry uh, along the way. You know, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, it mentions the fact that Simon the Cyrenian was compelled to carry the cross for Christ. And over the years, we've kind of pretty much put two and two together, and we realized that basically what happened was he was carrying it, and he couldn't. He fell, and so you know they had this guy help him because the torture had taken his toll, and Simon was given that privilege to help. You know, something interesting, when we go, and a lot of, I pray that a lot of you guys go to Israel, man. You might think, well, it's a lot. Well, first of all, for what we're doing and for the price, it's, I mean, for what we're doing, it's a good price. But it is a life-changing experience. And a lot of times people will spend their money on other things. This is worth every penny. You get to walk down the Via Dolorosa. It's about, um, this is interesting, 666 yards. I thought that was interesting. But you, you get to walk and you get to see these places. You're going to see, when you go to Israel, you're going to see the, 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 the skull, the place of a skull where he was crucified. And then you'll be able to look this way and then this way to the garden tomb, which is what we're going to be reading about today. But, but when you look at this, it's interesting. They, they, they asked him to take this cross uh, in Hebrew, it's called Golgotha. In Latin, it's Calvary. And that's why we get our church name, huh? Calvary Chapel. That's why the whosoever's, when you look at their hats, they have skulls on them. And people are like, wow, I can't believe these Christians you know, have skulls on their hat. Well, that's what Calvary means. <laughs> and, and we don't know for sure why it was called uh, the place of a skull. Uh, some legends tell us that, that it's because Adam's skull was buried in that hill, which is probably not true, but there are some legends say that. Other legends say it's because of the mound of skulls that were on that hill. Again, probably not true because of the fact that the Jews would not have that, but more than likely, it's because when you look at the mountainside, it looks like a skull. You can see the eyes, you can see the nose, you can see the mouth. Even to this day, you can still see a little bit of it. And so um, that, that's where, where, where Jesus was crucified. They, they nailed him to the cross and they lifted him up for all to see in the center of two thieves, robbers, criminals, probably 
uh, guys who were participants with Barabbas, maybe even murderers. So there Jesus was crucified. One guy said there was no more terrible death than the death by crucifixion. Uh, Cicero, the historian said it was the historian said it was the most cruel and horrifying death. It was despicable. It was originally a Persian method of execution. And it, it was probably used by them because the, the Persians, the earth was sacred, and so they, they want, didn't want to defile the, the earth, and so they lifted them up off the ground, nailed them to a cross, and there they would leave the body for the vultures and crows to complete the work of consuming them. Cicero said, It is a crime for a Roman citizen to be bound. It is worse for him to be beaten. It is worse for him to be killed And then he said, what am I to say if he be killed on a cross? He said, a nefarious action such as that is incapable of description by any word. There is no word fit to describe a Roman who would be crucified. That's how horrible it was. We don't understand it from where we are now. But this is where God proved his love for you. This is how he did it. You know, whenever they were crucified, there would be a sign, someone probably walking out in front of the individual, and they would walk in, in, in with this placard on which was written the crime in which this individual was about to be executed for. And there were two reasons for that. Number one, you got to remember, this is Passover. There are millions of people in Jerusalem and you've got to remember that the, the road that they're walking on is like a highway. I mean, we're talking about everybody's able to see it. So you have the, the placard walking in front of Jesus. It says, this Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And so everybody would know, well, that's the accusation. But not only that, William Barclay tells us the, the reason for that is twofold. The accusation, warning others, make sure you don't commit this crime. But secondly, because if anyone had anything to say in reference to the accusation, oh, that's not true, or maybe that is true, then they would then have a, 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 a hearing right there in the middle of the road just to make sure that justice was served. So there's Jesus with the placard in front of him, king of the Jews, and no one, no one stood up for him. But to me, it's interesting when this all unfolds, it's not random. We read in verse 19, Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, Latin. They wanted everybody to understand it. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews, they said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now, having gone through the whole scenario, I have a hunch that Pilate knew it was true, that the accusation became a realization to him. But the Jewish leaders, they fought the title of his royalty, his majesty, and his sovereignty. You know, the, the, it's interesting. Basically, the reason why it stuck is because God wanted his son to die with this proclamation on the cross, here is the king, the king of the Jews. Warren Worsby said the fact that this title was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin is significant. For one thing, it shows that our Lord was crucified in a place where many peoples and nations met. It was a cosmopolitan place. He said Hebrew is the language of religion. Greek is the language of philosophy. Latin of law. And all three combined to crucify the Son of God. But the thing that's interesting is he said this, without realizing it, Pilate wrote a gospel tract when he prepared this title. Because you want to know what happened? Imagine that, king of the Jews, king of the Jews. You got one robber on this side, one robber on this side. What's his crime? Oh, they say he's king of the Jews. Oh, really? It was a trap. It was a trap. Because what ended up happening as these robbers are watching Jesus die, 
They're watching the greatest act of love ever exhibited in the history of the universe as one robber had an open heart. King of the Jews was a track that God used so that you guys remember the story. Luke tells us about it in, in his gospel. He says that the, the, the robber, uh, he said, Lord, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, the Lord's on the throne. You know, Pilate writes what he writes. The Jews don't want it to be there. Pilate says, no, it's going to stay there. God says it's going to stay there. And what did God do? God ends up, he ends up saving this man. Not only that, you know, the, the thing about the Lord Jesus Christ being king, um, is he the king of your life? Does he call the shots? You know, the king is coming. You guys know that, right? You guys realize the king is coming? You see what's going on in Russia today? You see what's going on in California today? I mean, these are signs of the times. I was really surprised that Putin brought up the fact that the uh, United States of America dropped the atomic bomb in 1945. Now, why is he saying that? Well, he's saying that in one sense, because you know, sometimes we go through and we World War II and this, that, and the other. Oh, everybody's forgotten that. You know what? No, they haven't forgotten. It's almost like we still have one coming. Where is America in Bible prophecy? We're not here. I don't know, you guys, but when we see what's going on in California, especially California, where our governor wants to make this a sanctuary state, where you bring 14-year-olds from other states that want to have, you know, a, a sex change. I mean, we're talking like, you know, surgery. And our governor is saying, you don't even need your parents' permission. Come, we'll pay for everything. Abortion, we'll pay for everything. Do uh, you think God's just going to sit back and do nothing to this state? Now, don't leave California. A lot of people are leaving California. No, we have to pray for this state. We have to fight for it. I mean, if God leads you out, that's fine. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, we can't be ones who run away from the war. And, and so, you know, all I know is the king is coming. He's going to reign from Jerusalem. But the bigger question, I think, is does he reign in your heart, this king with thorns on his head and a cross to bear, demonstrating his love. You see, when a pastor or someone like me says, hey man, submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be your king, you got to understand, it's not some cruel tyrant who just wants to dominate you. It's the God who loves you, who wants to forgive you, who wants to bless you. When he had that placard, King of the Jews, it speaks so much to us. We see his accusation. And then it's interesting, we, we see his sole possession. And in verse 23, it says, And the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which is something we read ten times in the Gospel of John, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. You know, every Jew wore five articles of apparel. And so for every crucifixion, there were four soldiers who had the rights to divide it among themselves. And so, you know, you got the sandals and you've got the outer tunic and you've got, and some say a turban. We're not 100% sure on the other items of clothing, but we do know there were five altogether. They divided the four. There was one left. It was a seamless tunic and it was worth uh, some money. Um, again, uh, legends say it was given to him by his, his mother. It was valuable to him. Uh, we don't know for sure if that's true. All I know is that there at the cross of Calvary where God was redeeming us, where he was showing his greatest expression of love ever, we have these soldiers who are gambling 
for the clothing. You know, it was a fulfillment of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, which John quotes right here. And and it's interesting to me, you guys. Here, here's the kind of the way it, it comes, it ends for me. This is the cross, the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Do I see it? The world will never see my heart mended unless I see my God torn. Do you see it? Or is life just a game to you? Oh, look at these clothes right here. Hey, you're going to get that. I'm going to get that. Oh, this one right here is pretty valuable, man. You know, let's throw some, let's throw some dice right here. Let's cast lots right here. And that's life for you, a game. When Jesus Christ died for us on Calvary, I don't get it. I don't get it why some don't get it. I don't understand that. But that's what they are doing right there. They're playing games at the foot of the cross. Oswald Chambers said, all heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. All hell is terribly afraid of the cross of Christ. But men, men are the only beings who more or less ignore the cross of Christ. And that's what they're doing, these four soldiers. Later, a centurion would get saved, but he's not one of the four. And so when you look at this, it's really interesting. Not only that, you know, of course, like I said earlier, we're not going to be able to touch the, the bottom of this. There's so much here. One of the things that is interesting is that the tunic uh, this seamless tunic was what the, the high priests would wear. The high priests. Now, Jesus wasn't a high priest according to the order of Aaron or a descendant of the tribe of Levi, like we would read in the Jewish you know, religion, but he was a descendant of, in one sense, you could say of the lineage of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. And, and basically, you read the book of Hebrews, and this is what you find, that the guys on the, on the ground, the guys on the earth, the guys in the Jewish religion, they were just shadows of the substance. All those high priests, they lived, they died, they lived, they died. But they were just shadows of what Jesus was. Jesus was the, the, the real high priest. And the Bible says when, when he finished offering himself, he went and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And you know what the high priest does? You know what the priest does? The priest is a mediator between you and God. And he represents the people to God, and he represents God to the people. I don't know if any of you here are interested in a personal relationship with God, but that takes place through uh, the mediator, Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5. And that's the only mediator. And that's why he's wearing this seamless tunic. And, you know, that's probably the only property that Jesus had on planet Earth. He didn't have a, a, a donkey. He didn't have a horse. He didn't have a house. The Bible says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He, he didn't have anything other than the clothes. And now they take off his clothes one by one and guess what's left the Savior of the world, the sovereign God of the universe is hanging on a cross naked, proving his love for you. You're just like me. We're all the same. We are sinners. Amen? Some of you guys are really bad sinners. But he loves you. He loves you. God gave his son. The son died. The Holy Spirit highlights this. We got to know this. We got to let it reach our hearts. I mean, look at what he does on this cross. We read his love transaction in verse 25 now. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. 
And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. And, and, and I like the, the love transaction here because there is love going in both directions, I believe. Um, there's these that are not afraid to be associated with Jesus at this time, although he's hated by the Jewish leaders and condemned by the Roman government. Um, some even say that he's claiming to be king other than Caesar. But the women and John, they were not afraid to be there with Jesus. How in the world were they not afraid? How? And the answer is love. That's what the Bible says in 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. They, they loved him. Uh, I, I, when you look at this, it's just cool the way it was going in, in, in both directions. The, the love of the, the women, his mother, his, his Thea, Mary, the wife of, of Clopas, and, and Mary Magdalene. We're going to see her a lot in the Gospel of John especially. She was the one that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. Imagine living a life having seven demons Inside of you, that was Mary Magdalene. And the Lord Jesus Christ has set him free. You know, for us, you know, we've gone to Cambodia, we've cast out demons, we've seen it even here in different situations, casting out demons. Some people are possessed, some people are oppressed by demons. That's the reason, that's the reason they are in the situation that they're in because demons have their claws in them. But Jesus Christ, can cast out those demons. You got to come to him. And that's what happened with Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, you know, the Lord came and set her free, and she did the right thing. She never forgot. She never forgot. I think sometimes that's the problem with Christians. They forget. We forget what God has done for us. And that's why we don't live the way we should. We don't stay as close as we should. I mean, I know myself, addicted to drugs, there's no hope. There is no hope for me. Following in the footsteps of my father. But he came. And he cast out those demons. See, Mary Magdalene, she remembered... And there she is at the foot of the cross. You know, you see the love of John. I believe that John, you know, he recovered. You know, even though for a moment there he, he ran away, um, it, it didn't take too long for him to knew, know where he belonged. He, come, he comes back to Jesus. And so we see the love of the women. We see the love of John. But more than anything, right, we see the love of Jesus for John and for the others. Uh, isn't it interesting, you guys, how we read it here? Again, in the Gospel of John, it says, um, again, verse 25, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw, therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. Again, I love that every time John says that. Like he knew God loves me. He's the one that wrote it. I'm the one that he loves. Just like I tell you guys a lot. You guys, you know, he likes you, but he loves me, that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> he loves me as if I'm the only one to love. He loves me like the Amazon River flowing down to water a daisy. I know this. I know this. But more than anything, we see the love of Jesus here demonstrated towards his mother. You know, where he says uh, to them, he says, woman, behold your son and and to the disciple, he says, you know, behold your mother. He, he brings them together so that he would know that his mom would be taken care of when he died. And that's so cool. It's the heart of Christ. Again, the thing about love is this, that it's not selfish. It's constantly others-oriented. I'm beginning to learn this as I get older, and I still have a long ways to go, but you know, a lot of times in life, all you want to do is be happy. I want to be happy. I want to be happy. 
I want things to go good for me. But then when you start, you know, kind of like growing up and you realize what true Christianity is, you realize that that's not what it's about. I mean, if I have to suffer to make my wife happy, to, to make my wife blessed, you know, to bring my wife to heaven. That's what life is about. It's not about me being happy. It's about them being happy. And I'll tell you what, when, I, when, I, when I'm going through the, the, the house and I see my wife singing or I see her laughing or I see her joking, I see her happy, it's finally starting to click. You know, Manny, that's what your life is supposed to be, the product, that that's the way it's supposed to work. And I have the priorities of I want to please God and I want to bless my wife and my kids and then, you know, the church. There there is an order to it. This is the way the Lord is with us. He suffered to save us. Here we have the fulfillment of what was written in Luke 2, 34 through 35, that Mary would have a sword pierce her heart. Then we move on to the actual death of Christ. In verse 28, it says, And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Remember earlier when I was telling you guys I'm not afraid to die? This is why. This is why I'm not afraid to die. Because of this word that Jesus said. In the Greek, it's only one word, and it is to tell us die. You know, it begins with this section by him saying, I thirst, and to be honest, it's hard to believe that His thirsty cry was just for himself. I don't think that was the reason. I believe with all my heart that the only reason Jesus said, I thirst, is because he wanted to wet his tongue because of the fact that he had something to say and that would not have been possible without some sort of drink. Because at this point, we read about his condition in Psalm 22, verse 15, where it says, My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, another passage, Psalm 69, 21, and for my thirst, they, they gave me vinegar to drink. And so he wanted to say something, but he couldn't say it unless somehow he was able to get his tongue uh, off of the roof of his mouth because he wanted to say something. So he says, I-, I thirst because he has a public announcement and he wants everyone to hear this. He wants everyone to hear this. You know, Mark 15, 37 and Matthew 27, 50 tells us that he cried this out loud. I mean, loud. And John is the only one who tells us what he said. And he should know because he was there, right? And that's what we read there again in verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he died by then yielding up his spirit to his father. In the original language, now you've got to remember the Bible was written in Greek, and it was written in Greek intentionally because of the fact that it was, a, it was a language that was precise. And God knew exactly what word to put there in John chapter 19, verse 30, and that is the word to telestai. It's interesting. Since the foundation of the world, listen, since the foundation of the world, There is never a more important word ever uttered than to telestai. Charles Simeon, he said, Every word indeed that proceeded from our Savior's lips deserves the most attentive consideration. But this eclipses all other words. When Jesus said, finished. You know, that was always his heart to finish the work the Father had given him. 
Remember in John chapter 4, verse 31, when they offered him food and he didn't want any because he had been you know, reaching out to a lady that was hurting. It's, they urged him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I mean, my food, we love food. I'll be the first to admit, I love food. Forgive me for saying that, Lord, but man, Bebe's. You know, or, um, you know, you got the, the pizza that's really good, or you name it. Some of you guys are such great cooks. Uh, the other day I had some amazing chile verde, and you name it. I mean, it's good, right? But, but, but Jesus said, that's not what I live for. For us, it's like, okay, what's for lunch? What's for dinner? What's for breakfast? It's almost like that's, how, that's why we live. Jesus said, no, that's not how I live. My food, my sustenance, my satisfaction, my joy is to do the work of the Father and to finish the work. And when he died on that cross and he said those words, that was why, that was how he was able to finish what exactly did Jesus finish? Well, the word to telestai literally means debt paid in full. You know, it's interesting when you study archaeology, there are many discoveries. They've been covered many ancient texts. They're actually receipts, papyri, that, that they were receipts for taxes. And across them is written one word, to telestai. Imagine you go to your, you know, tax guy and, you know, you owe a few thousand dollars or whatever, or, you know, I don't know, your house, this is how much you have left on your house and whatever. They give you the receipt and if it's paid off, that's what they would write, to tell us that. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did. He paid the price for our redemption. Jesus paid a price he didn't know because we owed a price we couldn't pay, right? I mean, all the sins that we ever committed were laid on him, and he died in our place. You know, one of the famous songs, it says, Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It is finished. Punishment paid. The debt is done. The work is finished. Uh, there was once uh, a rather eccentric evangelist. I don't know if you guys ever heard of him. His name is Alexander Wooten. And he was approached by a young man who asked him, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? To which the evangelist replied, it's too late. And the young man then was alarmed. He says, do you mean it's too late for me to be saved? Isn't there anything I can do? And then Wooten said, too late, it's too late, it's too late for you to do anything, it's too late, it's already done. The only thing now is to believe. See, he did the work. He lived the life. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God treated Jesus as if he lived our life, and he treats us as if we lived his. He died for us. He paid the price. His precious blood just staining the ground red on Calvary. And when you place your faith in Christ, you're forgiven. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to behave in order to be saved, although I pray you'd behave to prove you're saved, but that doesn't save you. It's your faith in Christ. And so we read his death confirmed in verse 31, therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. 
It was a, a special Sabbath day uh, there woven within the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. It was a holy day, a holy day. Now the Romans would have left the bodies on the cross lingering for days, allowing the birds to feast on their victims. But the, the Jews, they wanted this crucifixion done and over with. And here they say it's because of the preparation day. And that might be true, but I'll bet almost anything, they just want him dead. They want to make sure he's dead. And so this is what they would do. They would actually break the legs to hasten the death. We actually have archaeological discoveries of crucified victims with broken legs. But the reason being is because when the victim was nailed to the cross, it was done in such a way that in order to breathe, he had to push up from his feet. And if they couldn't push up when the legs were broken, they'd no longer be able to breathe and therefore they would die from asphyxiation. And so the Jewish leaders asked Pilate to have the soldiers break the legs of those crucified that day. But we read in verse 32 that the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And you wonder why blood and water? Why blood and water? And and one of the, the, the medics, a doctor, Dr. C. Truman Davis, he wrote a book on this. And, and he said this, he said, the legionnaire drove his lance between the ribs upward through the pericardium and into the heart. And immediately there came out blood and water. Thus there was an escape of watery fluid from the sac surrounding the heart and the blood of the interior heart. This, he said, is conclusive post-mortem evidence that Jesus died not of the usual crucifixion of death by suffocation or asphyxiation, but of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. In other words, and you guys maybe have heard this, he died of a broken heart. That, that, that would be the, the, the technical medical diagnosis for the cause of death. And so when he pierced him through the side, out comes blood, out comes water. And so there is one aspect where it's the cause of his death, which is the medic reason. But then another thing that some Christians like to point out is the reason for his death, and, and that is the symbolic reason. Why blood? Why water? I mean, because when you're looking at this, again, like I said, we're just touching on things. It's so symbolic. It's so deep. Beyond our wildest understanding, you've got to dig deep when you find the nuggets of God. They go deep. And I like what Matthew Henry said. He said, the blood, the blood is for our salvation. But the water, the water is for our sanctification. And that's how it works. I mean, you get saved by the blood of Jesus and you are washed. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, in his blood, but then that water of the word. And I'm telling you this, and I'm not exaggerating, that you'll be the stronger Christian you'll be is kind of like a, a, a strong cup of tea. How much time does it soak, that, that bag soak in the water? How much time do we with open, hungry hearts soak in the word? Salvation, sanctification, we see it here. And by the way, it proved Jesus' death beyond a shadow of a doubt. And there are some people who believe that Jesus didn't even really die. They call it the swoon theory. People, Those people are really weird. Their teeth slid off their crackers completely, okay? No, he died. Um, these were expert executioners. They then wrapped his body and they put it in a grave. That's what John says in verse 35. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth. Why, John, are you telling the truth? So that you may believe. For these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled, not one of his bones should be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Now, again, I got to go fast because we're running out of time here. But, man, these things are so important. Let me mention this to you. Um, this is why we're here. 
And you, you, most of you are probably Christians, but there might be some of you who aren't. You're not really a Christian. And that's why John says this is written so that you would believe, because the moment that you believe, then you'll be born again. Life will come in, but you have to acknowledge your need for Jesus. Right here, he mentions the fact that this fulfilled scripture in the sense, number one, none of his bones would be broken. And that's in reference uh, to Exodus 12, 46. It says, in one house it shall be eaten, the Passover lamb. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. Same thing in Numbers 9, 12 and Psalm 34, verse 20. And what John is saying in a, in a real quick way is that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And you read that, you know, throughout the scriptures, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when you look at the book of Exodus and you read the whole story of how the Jews were enslaved in Egypt, then Moses came and then plague after plague after plague after plague, but nothing worked. They couldn't get free until that last Passover lamb. That was the one that changed everything. That was the one that set them free. They would take the Passover lamb but they had to kill it and they would take the blood and they had to apply it to the doorposts and the lintel. It had to be applied to their life. It had to be applied to their house. And if, you know, what would happen is then the angel of death would come and if he saw the blood on your life, on your house, then he would pass over. But if there was no blood there, then he would come in and there would be the death of the firstborn. All this, John is saying in, in passing, that's who Jesus is, our Passover lamb. Our Passover lamb. You guys, this is the final blow for freedom, what Jesus has done for us. You know, he mentions also the fact that in another scripture, they shall look on him whom they pierced, and this is in reference to the future, when the Jews will look upon Jesus. They pierced him, Psalm twenty-two sixteen talks about that, but Zechariah 12, verse 10, and Revelation 1, 7, says he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And so after this, we read in verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, and so he came and took the body of Jesus. You know, and when you look at this right here, you see a man who took courage. Uh, he's mentioned in uh, Matthew 27, verse 57, telling us that he was rich. Mark 14, 43 says he was a prominent uh, council member, meaning that he was part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. Um, Luke 23, 51 tells us that he had not consented to their decision. But he took courage and he came to claim the body of Christ. Otherwise, what the Romans probably would have done was they probably would have thrown him in a ditch and left him for the birds to eat and for his body to decompose. The Jews probably would have been okay with that because for a man not to be buried, that was the most terrible, terrible thing that could happen. And so I can't wait one day to meet uh, Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus. Uh, these were guys who were undercover Christians in the beginning. But when push came to shove in such an important time, they came forward. We read in verse 39, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, you read that in John chapter 3, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds, and then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And so these guys, they laid it all on the line, man, and they came to claim the body of Christ, uh, and to bury him. We read in verse 41, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. And so there they laid Jesus, because of the Jews, preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. And like I said, when you go to Israel, it's pretty amazing. You're going to see Golgotha, and then you just look this way and you'll see the garden tomb. And it's interesting because it's not just a tomb. You, you see the garden all attached there. And it's an amazing thing to see. They were in a hurry. Um, they couldn't finish it. So the ladies would have to come later 
And that was all planned because we know what happens on Sunday, you guys. Do you guys know what happens on Sunday? He rises from the dead. So he borrowed the, the, the grave, and that's kind of a big thing, but it was only for uh, the weekend, huh? <laughs> And so let me just close with this. Um, that guy I, I quoted earlier, I was kind of studying his life, Charles Simeon. Um, he's the one that said, every word that proceeded from our Savior's lips deserves the most attentive consideration, but this eclipses all others. And that, you guys, he finished the work for our salvation. Doesn't that make you excited? This guy, though, when you read his life, um, he was an aristocrat. He had a lot, a lot of money. And he went to a, a school uh, back in those days, Cambridge. It was a good school. It was actually considered a Christian school, but they were on the, kind of like the, the, it was the time of the apostasy, basically, where you see all these great schools that started off so well. Now there's a whole bunch of people that aren't saved. Like I, I was talking to my daughter about this, and we were, we were wondering, well, how is it that you can come to a country in which you know the schools used to be at church, and their textbook was the Bible? How could we go from there to where we are today? And I was just telling her, this is why, because people are not really born again. They go to church, but they're not really saved. And as that takes its toll over time, less and less people are going to church, you know, less and less people reading their Bible, less and less people saved, it ends up taking its toll. That's where he was. He was there, supposedly a Christian school. He was going through the motions and doing the Bible stuff, and you name it, I mean, everything that they were supposed to do, but he didn't really know the Lord until one day he was listening to a study, and it was about the Old Testament, and it was, you guys remember in the Old Testament how they would take the animal and they would put their hands on the animal? And um, for some reason, he saw that. And when they would put their hands on the animal, he, the, 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 the preacher was saying, and that's when they would transfer the sins to the animal and then they would kill it and slaughter it. And for some reason, it was then that it clicked for him. Oh, that's what, geez, that's what happened with Jesus, that all my sins were put on him and he bore that punishment for me. And then God just opened his eyes and God saved him. Have you seen that? Do you see what he's done? One person said the love of the cross is not what God suddenly became, but what God always was and ever shall be.